0: Right away, the right was saying, we will find you, right? We will hunt you down. It was like a witch hunt of sorts. We will uh, lock you up. And then obviously, Bolivian style, torture you, essentially, which is what the right has historically done. So that was one form of outright repression.
1: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
2: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, Pleased to welcome today, uh, Professor Nicole Fabricant, is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Got it. Hell yes. (laughs) Um, Who is the um, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Towson University, is that right?
0: That's correct.
2: Cool, yes. And um, also author of Mobilizing Bolivia's Displaced, uh, Indigenous Politics and the Struggle for Land. Um. And uh yeah we wanted to have you on to talk about the situation in 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 um Bolivia. You know, it's it seems like it's sort of settled down a little bit, you know, maybe a good chance to sort of sort of review some history and and take stock of of what's going on there. And sure. so I thought a good place to start maybe would be to to talk about, you know, the 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 in rise of Evo Morales uh in Bolivia and and what hap- what uh, he's been up to um prior to this uh this military coup right because um you know uh, kind of contrary somewhat somewhat surprisingly among a lot of uh, american commentators like the business press like he was doing like a like by sort of the measures of capitalism like very well uh you know he he had turned in a very solid economic performance and um you know it was not he wasn't um um maybe somewhat uh, uh unlike um his uh his his counterpart in Venezuela you know like more or less uh following the the democratic uh you know procedures and fairly and so on so so can you can you run uh run sure. us through that
0: sure um so i arrived to do uh field work the uh, the year that morales was elected so it was 2007 it was an exciting year um, I was there to work with landless peasants in Santa Cruz. Um, Santa Cruz is, has been the center of opposition uh, to Morales and has a very strong sort of right wing presence in the lowland area, Santa Cruz, that he have any. Most of the resources are now located in that region. So we have natural gas, there's the expansion of soy. Um, And elites have figured out how to kind of join forces across distinct sectors of the economy. But in 2007, when I arrived, it was an incredible moment, right? It was this historic moment. I mean, indigenous movements across Bolivia were really celebrating from highlands to lowlands. There was a sense that never before have we been in the seat of power. And when Morales first came On the political stage, obviously, he came from a union background. He was a cocoa grower. He was a union organizer, um, had rose to the ranks. And obviously, the Moss Party, political party, comes out of that history. Um, And initially, he proposed to do some really radical things. In 2007, right away, he said, we will nationalize gas. This was coming out of a very volatile period in Bolivia, where there were gas wars and people had taken to the streets when gas was privatized. So he promised to reclaim, to nationalize gas. He promised to rewrite the Constitution by creating a constituent assembly, so an idea around participatory democracy and having groups across all sectors, indigenous, social movements, and that they would sit down um, and reflect, right, and rewrite this Constitution. And then the big whammy um, was that he was going to radically redistribute land. and so initially, landless peasants and movements were really excited because in the lowland region, <clears throat> approximately 90% of the productive land is held by less than 7% of the population. It's incredible, the stats. Um, And so many people, rural farmers, have been kicked off lands. They've been unable to cultivate smaller scale production. So this they saw as a real stab at the historic oligarchy. And this would be a moment whereby I think lots of folks across sectors would be able to reclaim land and rethink agriculture for production, for food sovereignty. Well, that was the issue that pissed off the elites the most, perhaps. So in 2007 to 2008, when I was there, it was a series of just resistance to Morales. And really, it was around this question of radical land redistribution. I remember hearing folks say, Send your money to Chile. Send your money to Argentina. Communism has arrived in Bolivia. Be careful. He will seize your homes. He will seize your land. And he will seize your property. So at the beginning, I think there was real fears, right, around what this administration would represent. Um, and that's that's the moment historically, I think, in which Morales came to power. There's a lot of history in 14 years, um, but I'm just going to point to like a few moments whereby Morales had really scaled backwards on many of these commitments. And I think that's where many of us who have done work in Bolivia for a long time have been critical of his extractivist agenda, um, <clears throat> whereby the majority of the redistributive economy has come off of natural gas extraction, which has been incredibly harmful to the environment Um, to Indigenous communities who have been kicked off of their lands as a result of the extractive industry. There's all kinds of gender dynamics and labor relations tied into the gas industry that are highly uneven and unequal. So people have been very critical of that. People have been incredibly critical of Morales' authoritarian. And this happened around 2010, 2011. It became more and more apparent that he was going to remain in power for a very long time. It was a very vertical system of power. So despite the discussions of participatory democracy, there was a lot of incredibly hierarchical politicking going on. And so that's been a real point of resistance on the left, right? Many social movements felt as though they weren't fully incorporated into this state. The landless peasants that I worked with um, wound up splitting from Morales, Uh, in the latter, I would say, part of his regime because he literally made land occupations illegal. So he made it illegal to occupy or to seize land and redistribute that to peasants. It would have to go through the apparatus of the state. And he never redistributed the latifundio land. The only lands that have been redistributed are already lands that fell within the state power. Uh,
1: so not only was he not facilitating and doing what he said he would in terms of threatening the elites, in terms of land distribution, but he was actually preventing the horizontal grassroots tactics of activists to, to take absolutely. it for themselves. So he's obstructing, right. actively obstructing. Um,
0: absolutely. And this is part of the nuance of the critique. Like we, we have said recently, and I know we'll get to talking about the coup, but many of us on the left have said we can absolutely call this out as a repressive coup. While at the same time, we don't have to romanticize what Morales represented for social movements. And we have to acknowledge the very fraught uh, relationship between lots of movements and indigenous groups and the MAS political party. Because if not, then we're creating an incredibly dichotomous situation where... Mm he becomes the hero, essentially, of the working classes. And that, many people in Bolivia have felt like, is inaccurate, right? So it's almost this representation that has circulated in the U.S. and international circles that elevates him above and beyond what he was actually capable of in Bolivia.
2: It sounds to me like, like uh, somewhat akin to uh, Lula in Brazil, <laughs> like, a, like a guy who came in talking a big left-wing game and yet ended up being, you know, sort of hemmed in, slash domesticated, slash bought off by mm-hmm. the, you know, the forces of, of, uh, you know, entrenched power. And, um, and yet, you know, retained, you know, at least tried to s- spread around, you know, be, be doing maybe what amounts to a sort of center left type of politics, you totally. know. Yeah. And, and not just. Okay.
0: Social democratic, center left. I mean, that I would, I also would admit that the country has probably grown economically in these 14 years more under Morales than in any recent you know, president. Certainly the inequities that we've seen between indigenous people and mestizo or white Europeans, he has managed through all sorts of like social programming and state benefits Mm -hmm. to provide supports that never historically existed, right? So, I mean, I think we need to acknowledge that as well. And the resource dependency is part of a very long history in Latin America. So, you know, I think it's easy to criticize, but what other options for a real diversified economy do they have when in part they are dependent upon this world and global economy, right?
1: So, I mean, the left always has a two front war to wage, it seems. (laughs) Those in power who purport to to be representing the left uh, are almost always failures and in some ways undermine the very project we're seeking to advance. But on the other hand, as as we've seen in what's happened recently, that the very, very dangerous uh, oligarchic fascist alliance that reacts against even that center-left project is, is even more dangerous. And so, so it's...
0: Absolutely. And the scariest part, I guess, there's so many scary parts of what just happened in Bolivia. But what is particularly frightening to me is in a moment where the left has really been fragmented by mosques. So there's lots of parties and indigenous movements, the landless peasants included, that were way more radical pre-mosques than in a mosque era what does it mean when a right-wing fascist regime takes control and the left can't seem to align across so many of these differences, right? So and, I think we're experiencing a moment of what is the future, really? What's the political future of the left in Bolivia?
2: And uh, Mas is Morales' political party, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and Um
0: movement Socialism, right, is the acronym.
2: Right, yeah, okay. <clears throat> um, and this uh, this gets me to—actually, w- one more background question here, because uh, as I recall back when he was first elected, uh, one of his signature things he wanted to do was to establish the international trade in coca leaves as distinct mm-hmm. from cocaine, you know, which has right. to be rendered down in massive quantities to to—, to uh, you need huge quantities of coca leaves to create, you know, uh, cocaine um, because Bolivia g- can grow a ton of co- of coca leaves, but, you know, it'd be like an export thing. Um, right. And so he wanted a he wanted a legitimate market in in coca to make coca tea and stuff, which, you know, is just like very diluted uh, form of of, uh, you know, cocaine administration and just and like you know, akin to, uh, you know, sort of strong coffee or something like that. Uh, and yet the United States absolutely forbade him from doing that sort of thing. And I would I would imagine that sort of foreclosed, a lot, you know, uh, one of his options to diversify the economy, right, by restricting his...
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, he had a real political presence of publicly speaking at UN spaces where he would bring coca leaves and say... You know, coca leaves does not, it, this is not equivalent to cocaine. We have a long history. So, sort of educating an international community around. The cultural ritualistic practices, right? Before the war on drugs, which essentially eviscerated the possibility for coca farmers to make a living off of it. And internally, the market for coca is tremendous, right? Like bags of coca leaves are sold in every local marketplace. Um, there were all sorts of ideas for not just coca tea, but like coca wines and sort of industrializing coca within the context of Bolivia. It serves medicinal purposes, right? Right. I mean, it has proven to be the sort of uh, healing mechanism for altitude sickness. Right. So people right away when they arrive in La Paz, the first thing they'll do is drink coca tea because it quells a lot of the symptoms for altitude sickness. But you're right. I think the international community um, could not even hear what Morales was saying about these historic uses and practices of coca.
2: Yeah. And so I guess this 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 maybe brings us closer, you know, almost up to the present day. Uh, And, you know, one sort of confusing aspect of this coup here, which is that, you know, the the uh, Morales was uh, he wasn't going around, you know, um, executing all the landlords or anything like that. And um, yeah. And and so. You know, what inspired the the extreme right to make a play for power? Like, it seemed like they were sitting pretty right there. Like, what... It,
0: wh- they were totally sitting pretty, and... Since 2014, 2015, Morales has made so many pacts with the elites in Santa Cruz. Many of them were actually within seats of power, right, around agriculture, agribusiness, land ownership. They were getting pretty much everything that they had wanted, right, from the Morales administration. Right before all this occurred, they were further deforesting the Amazon very symbolic of sort of this moment was the fires in the Amazon, right? Like the Chiquitania and some of the lowland areas. I mean, a lot of that has just been expansive soy production. So I don't think they had any qualms around where or how they were able to negotiate with Morales. What I personally think, and we all sort of differ, but I'll put out what I think happened is that the threat around fraud with this election and this was preceding even the election. So I'm sure um folks knew that Morales, this fourth round was illegal under the constitution. And there was a referendum that was in 2016, I think, and to for him to run another term. And he lost that. So fraud and calls of corruption and fraud preexisted this October 20th election, right? However, um, I think that there was a lot, and it's hard to tell because many of us are not in the circles of these elites, Um, we're speculating from afar. However, I think leading up to that, there were packs that were going on and plans. And then when it became very clear, when the OAS report came out, and there were certain vote counts, the system stopped for a minute or a period of time, and the rural votes had not been counted, I think this was a moment where the right wing felt it was a perfect opportunity to seize the state. Like, I don't think they were ever satisfied with an indigenous president in the seat of power. There was a lot of historic you know, destabilization that I felt in 2007, where white elites were very much trying to stand up and against what they thought was an indigenous state. And that racism ebbed and flowed, but it never disappeared. And so this became this moment to catapult themselves into power, right? Mm. And I think that they used it, they seized it, and they saw it as a perfect moment to manipulate middle-class, working-class, indigenous people, and it was all in their favor.
2: Yeah. So, but, but can, can you back that out a little bit more? So, so, um, uh, can you explain the, there was like a Supreme court decision, right. That, that, uh, that gave him, uh, a sort of license to, and, and also the, the OAS, the organization of American States, right?
0: Yeah, correct. So he, um, over, was able to override the, the referendum, which the referendum was essentially just whether or not he could run for a fourth term. And many folks, even that supported Moss, felt like the, and Morales, that the time had come to an end. He probably should have stepped down gracefully in a dignified manner and said, I've done remarkable work in this period of time. Part of the problem is that they never cultivated real leadership. So there was never a second or third generation to take over power. And so I think that was a great fear of theirs. Um, In this election, however, it was very, very close. The actual numbers, Carlos Mesa was the center-right candidate that was running against Morales, right? And I think the final... Count was like nine or 10% difference. So it really wasn't a tremendous victory for Morales. And that's what led to all these questions around this is so close, right? But also we know that there's significant corruption in these in this election. And so it was probably a combination of how close it was, but also the question as to whether the votes were counted correctly, whether people were actually voting, if they were paid off to vote. And the fact that they had not counted all the votes all factored into this question of corruption.
1: What's your sense for what the people think actually went on? Do they, do the people in Bolivia, are they split like in this country where you have Fox news brainwashing people? So they think everything is fake news and they just have their own interpretation of reality or, or what's your sense of, of on the ground there now?
0: Yeah. So it's, so I think it's really um, complicated in terms of the different groups. Like I still have many relationships with folks in El Alto, which is the indigenous, militant kind of city in La Paz. They were at the forefront of the gas wars in many respects. Their neighborhood organizations are pretty far left in terms of uh, politics. Many people from El Alto were incredibly critical of Morales and felt he should not have run again. And even um, folks were WhatsApping me when all this was going down saying they think Morales did this to himself, that he felt uh, he wanted to leave in a way that would not taint his legacy. And so some part of this he brought on himself. There were other people, even among the left, like this is the left critique, right? Mm-hmm. There were people that also felt like um, he basically uh, was responsible for the bloodshed. So not not necessarily... Um, you know, saying this wasn't a coup. However, he was he was tweeting from Mexico. He was definitely riling up kind of his bases, right? To call this fascist coup out. There was a lot that he was sort of doing to to stir the pot in Bolivia. And so there was a very critical group in La Paz and El Alto of Morales. But I think that that differs. There were also supporters of Morales. So people, as you saw internationally, were taking to the streets saying, this is not our president. This is an all out right wing coup, right? And folks pretty much from Cochabamba and the protests there, which is like central Bolivia to La Paz, refused to accept this interim president. Then you have folks in the lowlands that are celebrating this, right? So I also have connections still in the lowlands and know a lot of the middle class, working class folks who were dancing in the streets claiming this is democracy, right? We have finally reclaimed our country. So you have this radically polarized nation where some people are celebrating, and the United States do, the diaspora community in Virginia, the largest Bolivian community in the entire United States is in False Church, Bolivia. And the messaging from that region was really that finally democracy will reign in Bolivia with this interim president. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. You-
0: That's a
1: lot to unpack. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Lot of, so there's no unilineal. No, of like, course. It's yeah. hard to say, this is how Bolivia It's incredibly is
1: that part of why the kind of oligarchic fascist forces saw an opening because of the fragmentation and the complexity of, of kind of the, the, the different uh, demographic um, populations? I, I mean, it must have been uh, part of what was challenging in the first place for Morales to bring together people from, right? Right.
0: Absolutely. And also the question about Fox News. I did want to say when I was there for a long period of time, I did some commodity chain analysis to figure out who was funding the different TV, because I I found most of the working classes in Santa Cruz uh, bought into this oligarchic vision, despite it's very similar to a kind of Mm -hmm. Fox News scenario in Bolivia, where the mass media is controlled by a lot of the landowners. So the same Sort of large scale agribusiness have put money into mass media. And do right? they
1: use like anti indigenous rhetoric or? Oh, yeah, okay.
0: Oh, well, it's even perhaps, I dare say this, worse than Fox News, but I've sat around watching it with working class folks in the lowlands and it is portraying indigenous peoples in the worst, you know, just as criminals, the landless peasants as thieves, you know, occupying your private property. So there's all this kind of pathologies of the poor and working class that become tropes and circulate in everyday discourses.
2: And uh what what population um uh what percent of the population are are, are indigenous? And I seem to recall like more than half, is that right?
0: Yes, it is. It's an incredibly large um percent. I think the numbers were like you know, over 50 today, percent is, you know, and that's hard because even in the census, a lot of people self-identify as one thing, but are actually mixed race because the majority, even of the white claiming folks would still be considered indigenous, right? Hmm.
1: And, and Morales himself, I, I think I read in your book that it's even unclear if he speaks uh, indigenous language, right? Or,
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So he himself, identifies as Aymara and Quechua, but there were all kinds of questions around his own indigeneity and to what extent it was an authentic form if he doesn't speak the native languages. Absolutely. Can you explain
1: the term uh, plural nationality?
0: Yeah. So um, also there are very distinct indigenous groups. So of all the nations, there's lowland indigenous groups, there's highland indigenous groups. And obviously the Aymara and Quechua are part of that original Coyasuyo, right, which extended way beyond Bolivia. But their culture is radically different than the lowland indigenous culture. And so this is part of also the different visions around territory, around uh, agro, you know, ecology, all sorts of things that Morales really took on a highland identity um, sort of presence, which initially lowlanders didn't feel like they fit into this state. Like, where do they fit in? Oh, right?
1: And so, so how successful was not just Morales, but these social movements in right. trying to unite the, these disparate uh, populations for, I think, like a socialist and eco-socialist project? Because even though, as, as you write, um, Bolivia is not at all one of the major contributors to climate change, it's definitely one of the places that's being affected by it. So, so cool. it, was that helpful in, in uniting the, these, these coalitions? or?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think initially it was. So the idea of plurinationality is the idea that all indigenous nation states are kind of represented, right? The the plurinational is that, you know, Guarani, Ayoreo, oh, these are some of the lowland indigenous groups, would have a presence in the state, right? That the state would become a mixture. So if you think about that Wipala flag, which has become a big symbol of the right resistance to an indigenous state, because once the coup took power, Agnes, the interim president, brought a Bible, and there were all sorts of moments in which those WIPALA flags were ripped out, right? So there were uh, images circulating where Police were cutting off the Wipala flag from their uniforms, and now it was just the Bolivia national flag. And there were lots of images traveling of people burning the Wipala flag. So the Wipala flag is the multifaceted, kind of indigenous, colorful Uh, checkered flag that represents this idea of plurinationality. Am I
1: making too much of a parallel? It's kind of spooky how, like, for, you know, with Trump and and white nationalist, white supremacist, evangelical Christian, right, coalition as a response to a pluralistic, diverse opposition.
0: Totally. Totally. I mean, there are so many parallels here that need to be tweaked out. Part of the problem, too, is... um, The social scientific world has not studied the right enough. Uh, And I think we are sort of obsessed and, you know, fascinated with how the left organizes and we find political, you know, refuge in some of these movements, but we don't quite understand the tactics, the everyday strategies and how the right because this is our opposition. And even when I was saying the landless peasants, I couldn't help but be in circles where the right was organizing in order to understand what are we up against. Right. I absolutely think there are so many parallels between Trump and the backlash to a kind of Obama era. Right. And what's going on in Bolivia. I think Bolsonaro as well is a huge force in Brazil in terms of an evangelical kind of rightist vision. And I know far more clearly that the Brazilian right and the Bolivian right are aligned. The extent to which the right in the US, there's soft money traveling into Bolivia constantly supporting a lot of the conservative uh, organizations, but I just don't know how savvy they are mm-hmm. to act uh, internationally to the U.S. Um, however, you know, I think they're with social media now and all sorts of forms, the young people are figuring out um, ways of cross-border organizing, right? Is
1: the reactionary, right, in Bolivia using similar censorship uh, tactics like in, in Brazil and the U.S.? I mean, you know, yeah. from fake news, Trump to, to Bolsonaro's literally, you know, getting rid of books that are leftists and professors that teach leftists.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that what we saw, the minute, so Agnes assumed power after Morales, basically, was forced to resign, right? So, I, I don't know, we haven't gone through this, but the word from Bolivia is that he was threatened. His life was threatened and he fled, right? He fled to Mexico. First, he went to the Chapare, where his bases are. And then he fled for asylum in Mexico. And so is Alvaro Garcia Linera. And every person on November 10th, that was the next in command kind of resigned because of the fears, the outright fears of being members of this political party. So right away, the right was saying, we will, um, You know, find you. Right. We will hunt you down. It was like a witch hunt of sorts. We will uh, lock you up, you know, and then obviously Bolivian style torture you essentially, which is what the right has historically done. So that was one form of outright repression. But then I think there were all sorts of ways in which there was a media blockout in Bolivia. We were only getting information because we had people on the ground in movement sending us videos or human rights violations, like people who were murdered from Cochabamba. Folks were sending me images of the distinct protesters that had been gunned down. If it wasn't for these people on the ground, the international and the national media was completely blacked out. Yeah. So that' was like repression, you know, as much as you can say, like there was no left press, there was no alternative press, even the tale I think there was an Al Jazeera woman who tried to get um to Cochabamba to film some of the protests, and she was tear gassed wow. and told that her life would be in danger if she continued to be amidst this,
2: yeah, um, yeah, I guess you know that this uh leads to you know. I want to just sort of go through the mm-hmm. uh, the the situation here uh you know a, a, as it leads up to the actual present day um right. you know so so you've gone through some of it uh mm-hmm. you know basically the 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 military comes out you have all these threats on like basically the entire administration's lives um morales flees to mexico and then this like loopy <laughs> A random right. senator from a tiny party, right, named Agnes right. just declares herself president. So so can can you tell us about that? What the hell's going on? That'd be
1: like just uh I don't know what the equivalent here would be. <laughs> It'd be like uh John Delaney just claiming presidency or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
0: <laughs> Like, this wasn't even a legitimate political party. She had less than 4%, not even in this election. Like, I don't even think the political party, it was generally, you know, less than 4% were supporting this, this party. However, as the kind of, and I put that in quotes, kinda constitution, she supposedly, she legitimized herself, essentially, is what wound up happening. And I... I happen to believe that there was so much chaos and it really was chaotic because she swept in, she assumed the presidency. You could see these symbols were radically changing, right? As soon as she declared herself the interim president, um, here she is, this mestizo looking woman with like blonde hair, manicured nails, comes into the you know, the seat of power with this Bible. So all of a sudden we begin to see like Christian, white European reclaiming the seat of power. Um, and she's supported essentially by Luis Fernando Camacho, who became this national figure. Everyone has heard this name, who was the head of the civic committee, which is like a chamber of commerce, right? Um, wearing the baseball hat. And hat. and he comes into the picture um, as well even before Morales resigned, he was going to hand deliver a resignation letter to Morales. He was rallying up like the forces in Santa Cruz, really getting people to support what was about to happen. And then when Agnes assumes um, the presidency, I, I think that all the backlash was Are a result of lots of different social movements coming together and realizing that this was an undemocratic seizure of power, that this was absolutely, whether they supported Morales or not, it was like the violation of human basic rights that sparked the resistance. But to this day, you know, she still has not set a date for the new elections, which is a big question. And she's only supposed to be in power for 90 days until they hold democratic election
1: okay so can you walk us through the constitutional procedures so it sounds like what you're saying is that once the president resigns there is the ability for someone like this to step in in the interim fashion this way or or how does that work
0: there was because she everyone so it would have been the vice president which was alvaro garcia linera he also fled in that moment and then it goes down in power beyond the vice president to, like, the head of the Senate, right, and, like, the vice president of the Senate. And because a lot of these people were Moss political party supporters of Morales, and there were these direct threats against them, she legitimately or unlegit, however I you want to say it's kind of a murky category, but nevertheless, she was able to say, well, I am, right, the next...
1: Because everyone else said, not me, not me, not me. And she's like, me. (laughs) I'll I'll do it.
0: She said, me. And, you know, quite frankly, the international community has kind of legitimized it. Um, There hasn't been a ton of opposition that's clear enough to say this is a total seizure of power. And, you know, this is completely undemocratic. And so when you have a blackout of media and you have folks fearing for their lives, I... I think this is the result of the illegitimate.
1: Did this seem to precipitate uh, more violence between the different oppositional people on the street? Or or did it uh, somewhat stem the conflict? Or or what was the effect on on that?
0: Absolutely. I think there was um, a series for a week, right, from... November 10th was the day that Morales fled until probably about the 16th, uh, 7th, like that whole week. It was a series of protests. Um, so there were mosque, clearly MAS supporters. And the news and the word from Bolivia is that they were vandalizing, right? There was a lot going on in terms of pro MAS folks that were angry, that were feeling like, you know, their leader had been forced to flee this country. So there were buses that were burned. There were houses that were burned. There were all sorts of ransacking. I mean, it was a mess, parts of La Paz and El Alto. But that was coming not just from the anti-Morales. It was also the pro-Morales, right? It's really hard to distinguish where the vandalism was coming from in a kind of uprising sort of way. When I think about Ferguson and Baltimore's uprising, you know, the one thing people are saying is, well, they're vandalizing their own property. No, this is about kind of historic rage, right? And how it manifests. And I think the same thing was sort of happening around this historic rage. And then the rage turns into just this explosive, explosivity. Um, So we saw a lot of that. We saw people in Cochabamba that were absolutely, you know, peacefully protesting. And this was the first massacre that occurred. Uh, the dates, in terms of the exact dates, I don't quite remember. But um, they had taken to the streets. These were predominantly folks that were supporting mosque, or at least standing up and against this like coup. Um, they were a diverse group of people, and they opened fire, they being military police. And so in this first massacre, about nine people were murdered and it was brutal murder. Like the images that we saw were gunshot wounds all over bodies. Um, And immediately after that, there was another protest of a gas. um, It was like refinery of sorts in El Alto, Uh, where they were protesting around the gas. Gas becomes very symbolic, right, for protests around reclamation, around questions of whose gas is this, because of the ways in which the elites have, um, you know, manipulated control over gas. And gas royalties. And so they were protesting. They created a blockade of sorts. And that's when the second massacre occurred. And altogether, I think the number was like close to 20 people that were murdered and hundreds wounded in both of these incidences. And Amiez passed a law that there was total impunity. So no one would be held accountable for any of the murders.
2: Damn. Damn yeah the, uh so this this i think uh is a good point to 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 bring up the kind of international context because yeah. um you know you look at like the the kind of quasi coup thing that happened mm-hmm. in Honduras in 2009 right. and that mm-hmm. uh you know the the united states made some sort of weak criticisms of that but nevertheless i mean there was a sort of decorum about uh you know, um, the things that the United States would potentially get on your case for. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, just a a, a nutcase right-winger just declaring Mm -hmm. herself president after threatening to kill the... the, Like, that... Under Obama, I think that maybe would have been sort of beyond the pale, or even just would have been thought to be behind the pale, and maybe would have restrained people from trying something like this. And so my suspicion is that the Trump administration has... Enabled this sort of behavior by by welcoming, uh, you oh. know. So you think that's the case?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was hard to uh, get the exact social media tweets that were coming from different Republicans because they erased it right away. But as soon as Agnes sees power from. Uh, Marco Rubio to others coming out publicly and saying, this is a moment of victory for, you know, democracy, the classic kind of, you know, um, now, uh, finally, Morales is out. There was a series of tweets, right? And then Trump, yes, he said something clearly endorsing and legitimizing and yes, is now, Uh, being the president of Bolivia. So that absolutely exacerbates it. I mean, the question, too, that is not indicative of the United States right now. So there are lots of really fabulous human rights, you know, lawyers and groups that are actively sending commissions to Bolivia. So I do think that's important because despite the fact that our president has endorsed it, there are lots of these sort of, um, accountability groups, you know some of them coming from Harvard Law School that have uh, sent folks to document every human rights violation. Argentina sent a recent commission to uh, prepare reports. so these reports are now coming out about these two um mass you know murders essentially in Cochabamba and El alto uh, but absolutely the national sort of stance of our government has just exacerbated some of these tensions. Right. But I also think that we have bolstered in many ways that is not getting enough attention, the right in Bolivia. So I said, I don't know how clearly they're aligned, but I do know that money has flowed into Bolivia historically. Mm -hmm. So U.S. aid, there's been tons of money in the 1950s and like an anti-communist environment where the U.S. funneled millions of dollars to support large-scale agro-industrial development in the lowlands, right? And throughout the years, we have kind of kept an eye on this lowland region because we saw it as an opposition party, right? We saw this as a pro-business, pro-sort of, you know, in the 80s, neoliberal, right, regime. And so they were very much aligned with the United States. I know for a fact, National Endowment for Democracy, there's like lots of linkages between money that is funneled from the United States directly into fomenting some of these right-wing groups in hmm. Bolivia. we so uh, can't uh, that, I guess,
1: right? It's complicated, but how much can we tell that um, the support for this kind of uh, – you know, our, our imperialism and our capitalism basically has an interest in countries like Bolivia and their national resources, not right. being protectionist and not being distributed equally right. and helping the people. Instead, we want to, you know, bring them into the, the global market so the invisible hand can take all their stuff, basically. Right. Completely. Yeah. So, so um, what, do we, what do we know about, uh, again, because Morales seemed to be kind of trying to have it both ways and appeasing a lot of the elites by not completely doing what he set out to do or said he was going to do, right?
0: Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a real question that's out there for many of us right now. How much was Bolivia really on the radar? For the United States, Central America is clearly our backyard, right? And historically has been. And so it's very easy to trace those kinds of imperialistic um, you know, endeavors. However, Bolivia... Much of the natural gas is going internally, right, to Brazil, to Chile, to other nation states within, which do have, obviously, relationships to the United States. Um, it's unclear to me. There's been a lot of proposals that lithium and was the big issue, right? And there's been some, you know, I wouldn't call them all out conspiracy theories, but I just don't have enough concrete evidence pointing towards U.S like meddling around questions of lithium. I know that like um, Japan, China, there have been certain investors in Bolivia's lithium and there were concerns around Morales kind of semi-nationalizing the lithium industry in a moment where we're about to expand, right? Electric cars and the need for lithium is going to become more and more critical, right? I mean, talking about sort of moves towards either Green New Deal or like a more eco Sort of agenda, it's inevitable. Um, and so I think people were looking not just at Bolivia, and this is why I don't think it was a direct relationship, it's also Chile, like there's lithium deposits all over South America, right? Um, so besides that, I can't see a real concrete interest right now in the resources. I mean, soy production, certainly, but that's really Brazilian investments by and large in agribusiness and soy too. Um, You know, certainly as a second or third party, we have influence. I just don't know that Bolivia was that much on the Trump administration's like, you know, mind before this happened.
2: Yeah, it seems to me like it's maybe a, um, like just an ideological affinity. uh, that they they see a white a white appearing uh you know evangelical nutcase uh forcing out you know doing a military coup on a you know nominally leftist guy at least and that's that's thumbs up like sight unseen yeah i don't i mean
1: well and and maybe yeah, I... sorry no i was just say as you suggested i think when bolsonaro takes power the the global ascendance of kind of neo-fascist oligarchic power probably motivates and inspires other uh, vested interests around the world to kind of say, hey, we can do that here.
0: Totally. And like, I do think beyond, um, you know, you asked about Trump and uh, the right in Bolivia. I do think that the history of fascism in Bolivia precedes maybe, you know, a lot of our sort of white nationalists. I mean, many ex-Nazis fled to Santa Cruz, right, in the aftermath of World War II. And so you have these youth groups that are formed around fascism from as early as that period. Um, And that is a real critical, I think, link to all of this. Maybe the moment was right, as I said earlier, to really begin thinking about, you know, broader seizure of power. But we have seen these symbols of Nazism in a very long time. And it takes the shape and form in Bolivia of anti-indigenous, these youth groups that have come to receive a lot of attention that are like the strong arm of um, the Chamber of Commerce. They're actually, I mean, I've tried to go in and see sort of what, some part of the training looks like, but they're ideologically training people in fascist, you know, rhetoric and have books that have been transported. They're certainly linked to Brazil. The question of how evangelical they were before sort of other spaces and states taking kind of right-wing Christianity, I don't know that, but I can say that the people that were displacing a lot of the landless peasants were these youth fascist paramilitary groups, right? And they were armed.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Um, So let me see. Got time for a couple more questions. Uh, You know, um, Bernie Sanders, for one, has has called this a coup. Um, And, you know, a lot of the other Democratic candidates have condemned it, at least uh some i don't think anybody quite as strongly as sanders it uh you know if he were to ascend to the the presidency uh you know he would he would have you know power to sanction like like mm-hmm. broad power to sanction governments for doing basically anything he doesn't want is there any sense um you know it, it often feels to me like like extreme right wingers are 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 they they kind of only know how to just double down. There there's yeah. it's not in their nature to sort of like hedge their bets or not go for broke every single time. But is there any sense, do you think, among this like Anyez crowd and like mm-hmm. the 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 you know stormtrooper whatever youth league supporting her that? it might be somewhat politically risky to expose yourself in this way because the next president might not be Trump. It might be sort of frowning, you know, very sternly at you.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think quite frankly, everyone's really concerned about that <laughs> like looking towards the united states right right now in this moment of you know young people especially like a new generation taking climate change really seriously taking eco socialism seriously putting their politics out there, right, to support candidates like Bernie and to work for him, I think is a real threat, not just to Bolivia, but to like the diaspora community, you know, of Bolivians in the United States that see this kind of coup regime as a democracy. For them, they're going to label certainly Bernie as just a commie, right, which they do uh, for anyone. Until they
1: get their free health care, then maybe they'll reconsider.
0: Exactly. See, the problem is they don't quite understand the layers of their own oppression in this country. Mm -hmm. And so they cling on to this white status, right? And it's the same in West Virginia and working class areas where I've taken students, right? Um, Just this white, you know, sense that somehow you can hold on to that, right, as a bit more powerful than the black or brown or, you know, person who's working (laughs) below the low wages. The wages of
1: whiteness, (laughs) yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So I think that Bernie's Bernie by far Warren had nothing to say, quite frankly, in my opinion, nothing she said. It was a typical liberal kind of perspective she had. (laughs) She did not call it out. She did not condemn it, nor did she talk about the history of U.S. imperialism. Bernie did all three of them and obviously is tied into a broader Latin American community, right, like understands, broadly speaking, uh, the history of the United States.
1: No, yeah. Um, yeah unfortunately, w- w- with, but, with even though Warren is the only other candidate other than Bernie that is a- anything other than neoliberal disaster, uh, th- they can't be more different on foreign policy. To it, it, that okay. she has foreign policy ideas, they tend to be terrible. Um, so that's disappointing. But
0: so I think most people were just disappointed. Yeah, with- of course. You know, uh, and it took her so long. Bernie came out right away. As soon as we were in the heat of things and we were writing letters condemning human rights violations, he was the first. And then obviously the congressional group of AOC, Ilan, many others also condemned uh, the human rights violations and called it a coup.
1: See, yeah. t- to be socialist isn't to not understand the nuances that we've just been talking about and the complications with Morales and all that, but it usually is pretty simple to figure out when some bad shit goes down and which side you should be on.
0: Absolutely. And how to have some chutzpah. You yeah, exactly. How to exactly. Out about it, right? To actually, you know, be a political figure that takes a stand. To me, like Bernie really was the only. Person that put himself out there in that way and consistently does right across most of the policy. Um, he's not afraid to innovate.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Is there hope on, on the ground in Bolivia too for resistance, or or from where we go from here in terms of responding to this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I always try to say I never end my classes on a pessimistic note because I hope that students will be fueled into social movements and believe in the power of organizing. Oh yeah. Although- things are pretty grim in this Trumpian moment. I still refuse to leave them just cynical. And I feel the same way about Bolivia. I think that the history of the country has some of the most radical left-wing movements we've probably seen across the globe. Like the miners were a faction of trots that had a real militant politics, right? And advocated for nationalizing the mines and I don't think we need to lose that sense of history or radicalism in Bolivia despite the fact that people have been fractioned across sectors I really do believe that maybe in a moment of crisis in this moment of crisis is what they needed to reach clarity and to push a real left agenda further along right so I do believe we're going to really begin to see some realigning in this moment
2: yeah yeah, and another, you know, maybe as a, a a a final uh sort of question for you, the the uh one lesson here I think for me is that uh this this shows that um uh you know the United States is so powerful that you know you you sort of can't avoid making tremendous uh Im- tremendously impactful decisions about other countries. You know, and and just like as Trump shows um, one, you know, just giving just even looking the other way at something like this could cause it to happen more or less or be the key factor. But I think another thing um, that may uh, slash probably explains why so many of these, you know, like nominally socialist leaders of, of, of smaller countries or poorer countries get kind of domesticated is because they're thinking in the back of their head about wall street about international capital and about the power of the president and if you were to put a uh you know a, a real even just a regular progressive you know some kind of a FDR type in the mm-hmm. in the driver's seat of the presidency that could you know s- sort of unleash people to go a little bit further in terms of you know redistributing land or whatever you know or at least remove that excuse because mm-hmm. You know, we you see it in many many countries that uh, just the sanctions power, leaving Mm -hmm. leaving aside uh, Wall Street or anything else, can just wreck a place, and so.
0: Bolivia is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, right? Second to Haiti. So imagine without any U.S. or transnational. I mean, an embargo wasn't, you know, cutting relations with the United States was not even probably on the radar of Morales, even in his most radical moments. You know, I think he realized he was going to be dependent upon nation states. In Latin America, but also transnationally, right? Unfortunately,
2: yeah, yeah, and I mean, you, you just, you know, as a small country where mainly what you do is export commodities, uh, that's one of your main things. Uh, you really don't have any choice, but right. one, one thing you can do as an American, you know, socialist movement is enable that international solidarity.
1: Well, and, and the other thing I think that's important about not just Bernie but the the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. And, you know, any socialists or leftists that care about countries like Bolivia, because as much as this is uh, a clear coup with just, I mean, literally a president being run out of office and people being murdered and massacred you don't see this on the, on the, the news, you know, you don't, you hear much about it in this country. And and part of the thing that part of the thing that I think a a leftist movement here can really do is put a lot of pressure on our politicians um, to to make it something that we don't just let happen. So uh,
0: I think that's a key point and something I've been pushing the human rights committees here to think about is Where are our pressure points in D.C.? Like, how do we use these as policy briefings to make visible that which has become so invisible? Right. We have naturalized the sense that other countries will just undergo military coups and essentially people will be murdered. My students had no idea what was going on in Bolivia. None. Right. And I think they're pretty indicative of the general population of the United States. So, you know, yeah, how can we think through members of Congress to actually read these policy and briefings of human rights violations and then bring pressure campaigns, right, that would absolutely hold people accountable in Bolivia for committing these atrocities.
1: And just to also develop the ethos that, you know, extra legal, undemocratic, fascist violence anywhere is a problem to people everywhere.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Right. That we can't just turn this blind eye to it. We have to, yeah, acknowledge and confront it and call it out. Right.
1: And thank God with with I mean, the disaster of climate change at least brings awareness, especially for young people, about how interconnected all of our global problems are. So maybe that gives us a little hope for for how a socialist foreign policy and international perspective might take root.
0: Absolutely. No, I have a lot of hope in these young people. And I think they're going to be that next generation that does get us someone like Bernie elected. You know, they're out there doing the hard work every Friday of really putting bodies on the line for real climate proposals and radical changes. Right. So I do think in my lifetime, hopefully we're going to see a shift.
1: Well, yeah. thank you for everything you're doing to help educate thank the youth you. and spread the word. It's
0: been chatting with you guys. Uh,
1: it's been really wonderful. Really, yeah. really a pleasure and an honor to learn from you and to speak with you. And, and uh, yeah, thanks again.
0: And I'm so glad you're bringing attention to what's going on in Bolivia because so few media sources have really been able to delve into the complexities, understand the complexities, but also call out, right, this as a military coup. So much appreciated.
2: Yeah. Um Nicole Fabricant, the, uh, the, the, the um, book is called um, Mobilizing Bolivia's Displaced. Uh, we'll link to that in the description. Um, thanks for coming on and thanks for listening, everyone.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.